Today, uh, we're going to continue this series different. We're doing something a little bit different than we normally do. Um, my bread and butter is just kind of just regular Bible preaching and picking a topic or picking a, a, a book of the Bible and going through it. Um, over these three weeks, we're looking at kind of a comparative uh, study of religions. Um, and I want to review a little bit last week, and then we'll jump into to what we're going to talk about today. Um, we said last week that there are really two mistakes that, that people usually make when it comes to this, when it comes to comparing religions. Number one, the first mistake is to kind of blur the lines and make everything or every religion say the same thing. We all kind of believe in the same God. We all kind of have the same rituals and rules, um, and, and, and we're, just, we're just dressed up and presented in different cultural garb. Um, so that's the first mistake. Uh, the second mistake uh, is to cast other religions in their worst light, right? And, and as we turn to look at Islam today, this is the second, or, or this is the most common mistake when it comes to Islam since 9-11 and everything that's taken place since then. Um, those in the West have tended to, to, to either rush to defend Islam completely or we rush and, and paint it in its worst light possible. I want to offer a third path today. Um, I, not just with Islam, but especially with Islam. Because as we said last week, the best way to honor the world religions is by turning all of the lights on full. To let them say what they say. To not try and make them say what you want them to say. Let them say what they say. Let, them, let the distinctive colors and all of the things that are true about it come to light, and then you compare those distinctives. You look at the difference between the different distinctives, the different colors that come out from those different world religions. And again, this is especially true with Islam. It represents 1.5 billion people on the planet. It's a lot of humans that we're sharing this big ball with. And that's also... It's an opportunity for followers of Jesus. It's a unique opportunity for us to see what they see. Even, even if you're absolutely committed to the truth and lordship of Jesus Christ over all things, as I am. It's a unique opportunity just to pause, just to step back, to listen and see what they see, to listen to what they believe. And when we do... Um, will not only understand their faith better, it actually helps us understand our faith better because we're comparing and we're contrasting. So that's what I want to help us with um, today. And I'm not going to do this by giving you a Christian account of Islam, okay? There are plenty of books that you could go buy and read, okay? I'm not even going to give you a Christian critique of Islam. There are plenty of those books too. What I want to do is I want to flip it. I want to explain what, what our Muslim um, neighbors and coworkers and even friends think about Christianity. I want you to hear what they see as deficient in our beliefs. And I think you'll agree by the end, this, this is going to be a helpful way of seeing, again, not only what the distinctives in Islam are, but what the distinctives in Christianity are as well. Okay? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to point out five critiques that, that, that Islam has of Christianity. I'm going to ask a question of that critique. And then at the very end, I'm going to ask two really big questions that you can take away and you can ask of your Muslim coworkers and friends and neighbors if, if you ever find yourself in a conversation with them. Okay? So 
Here's the first critique. The first critique, all other critiques flow from the first one, okay? So we've got to get the first one before you get the other five, okay? The first critique that Islam has of Christianity is that the New Testament has been corrupted, okay? There's a tension um, when Muslims look at, at Christians and with Jews, by the way, because they will label us as people of the book, which is actually an honorable thing because they believe that, that, that God revealed himself through Moses. They believe that God revealed himself through Jesus. That's where the book comes from. They, they, they view us as people of the book. But on the other hand, they would view us as incorrect people of the book because Islam teaches our sacred books have been modified over time and therefore corrupted. So yes, God revealed himself to Moses, God revealed himself to Jesus, but the disciples of both have corrupted that revelation over the years, okay? Here's what the Quran says about that. Oh, people of the book, talking to Christians and Jews, do not exceed the bounds in your religion unjustly and do not follow the fancies of a people who went astray in the past. It's all the people who corrupted, all the people who changed and led others astray and strayed from the right path. So, our texts, our scriptures have been corrupted. This is why Allah had to restore the truth to the world through the Quran, the sacred text of Islam, the most perfect revelation is what they call it. It's, it's corrected the corruptions found in the Old and New Testaments. He did that back in 610 AD through a 40-year-old businessman that we know of as Muhammad. Muhammad heard a voice say Quran, Quran, which means recite, recite. And, and from that day forward until his death in 632, Muhammad received frequent revelations from the angel Gabriel who recited to him. He recited to others, and those recitations were formed into the book we call the Quran. And by definition, by their definition, this downgrades all previous revelations. Okay? Again, Islam agrees that Moses was a prophet. Jesus was a prophet, but where the Old and New Testaments depart from the teaching of the Quran is where the corruptions have, have been made in the text, okay? So that's the critique. Here's the question. Here's the question I would ask a Muslim about that critique. It's very simple. Where is the evidence for an earlier Islamic form of Jesus' teaching which has been corrupted? Because we have well over 5,000 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament alone. Wouldn't there be at least one where there's a hint of Jesus originally teaching Islam? Wouldn't there just be one? And of course, Muslims have a reply that will go along the lines of, well, they corrupted it pretty much immediately, and that's why there's no evidence for it. Okay. So, again, have to start with this, this critique because all the others stem from this one. For Muslims, since the text is corrupt, so are the ideas. Okay? So, a few more ideas that they would say are deficient. Here's the second criticism. God did not let Jesus die on a cross. Okay? Now, if you've been around Grace Point for any period of time, you know this one's kind of important to us. Right? This is central. It's, it's kind of a big deal. Philippians, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a 
the cross. Central. It's central orthodox Christianity. If you take away Christ's death on the cross, there's not a whole lot left in Christianity. But this idea, this belief is explicitly ruled out by the Quran. They neither killed nor crucified Jesus, but it was made to appear so unto them. Indeed, those who differ about him are in doubt about it. Their knowledge does not go beyond conjecture, and they did not kill him for certain. Rather, Allah raised him unto him. That's what they believe. Now, why would Islam teach this? Like, what's behind that? It has to do with the kind of fate they believe an all-powerful, all-wise God would allow one of the holy prophets to, to meet. Okay, Crucifixion was regarded as the most shameful, disgusting type of death in antiquity. And, and it's just unthinkable that God would allow the great holy prophet Jesus to suffer such a, a shameful death. That's where it comes from. This gives us insight into one of the biggest differences between Christianity and Islam. Islam is way more into honor than Christianity is. Okay? Honor for, um, for the Quran, honor for Allah, honor for Muhammad, honor for anything that has to do with, with the name of Islam. And the cross is the exact opposite of that. The cross is dishonor. Um, but here's the question that I would ask. Outside the Quran, written 600 years after Jesus, is there any evidence that he suffered a fate other than crucifixion? There are multiple pieces of evidence from the first and second century, from Christian, Jewish, and Roman historians that all agree Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Where's the evidence that he died in some other way? And again, Muslims have a reply to this question. It goes something like this. It doesn't matter how much historical evidence you have. The Quran is the word of God, and it's true. Okay, here's the third, even more important criticism Muslims will make of Jesus. He was not divine. He was not divine. Again, pretty central to the truth in Christianity. Um, Jesus was not just a prophet, not just a teacher, not just a healer. We believe God, or we believe Jesus was God in the flesh. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And that wasn't invented by the later church. It wasn't invented by creeds. It wasn't invented by councils. It's what the original documents say. It's what the original disciples taught. Jesus being in very nature God. We just read that. One of the earliest hymns of the church. But to Muslims, this is highly problematic, both logically and theologically. They would, their skin would have been crawling if they were here today singing some of the songs we just sang. Okay, I, I want you to feel the force. I want you to feel the weight of this criticism. This is from section five of the Quran. Unbelievers are those that say God is the Messiah, the son of Mary. For the Messiah himself said, children of Israel, serve God, my Lord and your Lord. He that worships other deities besides God, God will deny him paradise and the fire shall be his home. The Messiah, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle. Other apostles passed away before him. 
It's hard to even stress how seriously Muslims say, you cannot say Jesus is God. It's blasphemous to them. They, they, they will talk to you about Jesus as a prophet. They will talk to you as Jesus as a teacher. They will even talk to you. They probably know more of the miracles of Jesus than you do. They will talk to you about all of that. They're not weirded out by religion, talking about religion in public like we are. But the second you start talking about Jesus as divine, without blinking, with, with no anger or rudeness in their voice, they will look at you and they will say, God will send you into the eternal damnation of fire for believing that. It's blasphemous. It's the worst sin in Islam. It's called shirk. It means association. It means associating something finite, something material with the immaterial eternal God. It's the worst sin. To say that Jesus is God is shirk to them. I'll give you another um, Islamic word, the doctrine of tawhid or oneness, okay? Um, most people will say that Islam started around um, uh, an event that happened in this building. This is the great, um, uh, the, 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 the Kaaba. This is the great mosque of Mecca, okay? This is where they take their hajj, their, their pilgrimage. Every Muslim has to go at least one time in their life. And um, the tens of thousands circle the Kaaba, that black box in the middle, seven times. Now, why do they do that? Islamic tradition teaches that this box used to contain the 360 gods of Arabia, the false gods of Arabia. And when Muhammad took Mecca, one of the first things he did was clear out all the idols and reclaim Kaaba for the one God. Islam is a monotheistic religion. So when Christians say Jesus is God to the Muslim ear, it is winding back this holy event for them. It is, it is completely just destroying the doctrine of the oneness of God for them. To say that Jesus is God is idolatry to them. He's not divine. And, and here's, it's, it's a simple question, and maybe it just sounds simple to me, maybe it's not as simple to them, but if the, a Muslim gave me a chance, is God able, as a pure act of his sovereign will, to become a man if he so wished? Could he do that? And again, they, they have an answer. You'll receive different answers. One response is absolutely not. <laughs> he couldn't, which raises all kinds of questions about the power and sovereignty of God. And the other, question, uh, the other response is, well, he could, but he didn't. And again, is that simply because the Quran says it? Or is there some kind of theological contradiction there? Okay, okay. Fourth criticism, the New Testament's rejection of holy war is not in keeping with divine justice. This is where some of the really sensitive differences between Islam and Christianity come in, okay? Um, you won't hear this on Fox News. You won't hear it on MSNBC. You're not going to hear it from anybody who's trying to sell advertisement dollars. But this is true. Islam prides itself on being a religion first and foremost of justice. Okay? I read an Islamic scholar this week who said, we love mercy, but we love justice more than mercy. They love justice. That's a very important insight into the worldview of Muslims. So, so Jesus' teaching about non-retaliation that we're so used to 
is problematic from a Muslim's point of view. Luke 6, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. Do to others as you would have them do unto you. Most Muslims believe Jesus didn't say this. Most Christians live their life as if Jesus didn't say this. But they don't believe that Jesus said this. It's part of what's been corrupted in the New Testament. And it's problematic because it elevates mercy above justice. It's out of that strong sense of justice that Islam teaches a doctrine you've heard of before called jihad, right? It's, it's, it means strive. It means straining. Um, and, and most of the texts in the Quran and their other holy um, scripture it's, it's about spiritual striving. It's about spiritual struggling. We would say something like, well, I'm just struggling with anger. You know, I'm striving to get over this jealousy. That's, that's, that's how they would use it. And there are other parts that talk in the text that clearly speak of military jihad, okay? Here's one of the most important texts surrounding this idea. Fight for the cause of Allah, those who fight you, but do not be aggressive. In other words, don't be the one to start the conflict, Surely Allah does not like the aggressors. Kill them wherever you find them and drive them out from wherever they drove you out. Do not fight them at the sacred mosque until they fight you at it. That's talking about Mecca, the great mosque in Mecca. If they fight you there, kill them. Fight them until there is no sedition and the religion becomes that of Allah. Thus, whoever commits aggression against you, retaliate against him in the same way. Fear Allah and know that Allah is with those who fear him. Most Muslims say that jihad is meant to be a second strike, not a first strike. It's not, being about the, it's not about being the aggressor. It's about being the responder. And again, it's a matter of justice for those who physically attack Muslims or for those who dishonor Islam or for those who dishonor the Quran or dishonor Muhammad. And so the notion of turning the other cheek the notion, the idea of loving your enemies or doing good to those who hate you, completely foreign in Islam. Not because they're mean or angry. It's because justice reigns supreme in their worldview. And of course, this raises a question. It's a question you've asked before. The question is, which is more likely to end the spiral of violence and foster peace? a cycle of retaliation for wrongs or a merciful willingness to forgive? Rhetorical question, don't answer out loud. Which of those ideas did Jesus teach? Last criticism, also related to justice. God's favor cannot be found through a substitutionary atonement. Big theological concept, okay? Again, it's very central to, for Christianity. There's nothing we could do to atone for our wrongdoing, for our sin. But because of his great love for us, God sent Jesus to die on a cross, bearing our sin and our shame. He substituted himself so we could be forgiven, so we could have salvation, okay? And just in case you think I'm making it up, Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. How'd that happen? 
How'd that take place? God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. It's so central to Christianity. Maybe you've never heard that term before, substitutionary atonement, but this is so central to what we believe. It's why it's so odd to our ears to hear that somebody else doesn't believe it. It's the same thing as last week. For Hindus and Buddhists, the idea of grace just doesn't make sense. It's, 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 it just, it, it's hard for them to get their mind around because you need to do something for your own sin. You need to work your way towards your own redemption. Grace is a cop-out. It's lazy. If you're the problem, you got to be a part of the solution. You can't just pass it off to somebody else. Here's, here's the, the Islamic principle stated as clearly as possible in the Quran. Every soul is accountable for what evil it commits. And no soul shall bear the burden of another soul. <laughs> it's almost like that was written to directly contradict substitutionary atonement. You, you have to bear the weight of your own sin. Nobody else can do it for you. This is also behind the insistence that you can and must atone for your own sins by performing the five pillars of Islam. Maybe you've heard of these before. Anyone who wants salvation must perform the five pillars. First one is confession. This is their creed. You have to say this out loud. You testify that nobody else can be worshipped but Allah and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. You have to say this out loud in Arabic sincerely to be a Muslim. Prayers. Uh, the five daily prayers that they have to do dutifully and perfectly. Um, zakat is their, is their tax. Every Muslim has to give 2.5% of their gross income to the local mosque. No questions asked. If you want salvation. Um, fasting or a pilgrimage to Mecca to perform Hajj. This is that one time in your life every able-bodied Muslim has to go to Mecca and perform about eight to 10 days worth of um, rituals to cleanse you from sin. And then fasting, that's Ramadan. You have to perform all of the fast during the month of Ramadan that starts in, in March, goes through April. But the point is, doing these five things will atone for most of your sins. The operative word, most, okay? They would never say that you earn salvation by doing these five things. That's not how they think. And it's also not that, that you can get this free through the atonement of someone else. It's somewhere in the middle. Think of it like kind of as a contract, okay? Allah um, has contracted with you. If you perform these certain deeds, atoning for some of your sins, he'll make up the rest. Here's, here's a text that makes this point clear. Recite then what you can of the Quran. Perform the prayer. Give the alms and lend Allah a fair loan. Whatever good you forward for your soul's sake, you shall find it with Allah growing into a greater good and a greater good wage. Seek Allah's forgiveness. Allah is indeed all forgiving all merciful. In other words, do as much good as you possibly can. You'll atone for some of your sins, and then Allah will probably make up for the rest. Do you see how different that is than Romans 3? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus? Church, that's different. It's completely different. So two questions. 
Two questions that I would pose to a Muslim friend or coworker or neighbor. That would be a little weird if I had a Muslim coworker, so it's probably not going to be working for me, okay? <laughs> for you guys. <clears throat> here's, the, here's the two questions that I would ask. How can you ever know when you've done enough good to enjoy God's favor? How can you know? And, and if you ask them this question, I've read enough of their responses to know they can't. They will say, I can't, if they're honest. I, I, I've done the confession. I do my prayers. I do zakat. I'm good. One day, I'm going to get to Mecca. I'm going to do my fasting. I'm sincere. I'm striving. I'm straining. But I don't know what Allah thinks of me. I can't know. Second question I would ask, a little more philosophical. If God demands atonement for some sins, how does he forgive the remaining sins without atonement? If, if it's an absolute rule that you must atone for some of your sins, how does God let you go from the others? Or, or to put it another way, if God freely forgives some sins, why doesn't he forgive the others? And again, most Muslims have a reply that basically says God is free to do whatever he wants. It's his contract. And I have no rights in this. If he tells me the way of salvation, I've just got to do it. Okay. So here's, here's, here's where we'll, we'll, we'll land the plane. Um, newspaper article from a, a, a newspaper back around Christmas 2001, I think it was. The, article of the, of the, t- the title of the article was The Love That Crosses the Great Divide. And the journalist's motive was to see Muslims and Christians get along. And so his, 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 his premise was, you both love Jesus, why don't you just do that? Why don't you start there? Why don't you just go with that? And in a moment of unnoticed irony, here's what the journalist wrote. The Islamic Jesus is not the Jesus who was the son of God, admittedly, and who was crucified, but certainly the Jesus who was Messiah and miracle worker, who conversed regularly with God, who was born of a virgin and who ascended into heaven. Can't y'all agree with that? Can't we just start there? What he didn't realize was he was asking Christians to give up the Christian Jesus and go with the Muslim Jesus, which doesn't work because we have to throw a lot of things out to go with the Muslim Jesus. It's the mistake of trying to make all the religions say the same thing. You don't honor them. You don't honor the Billions of people in this world who believe this by doing that. You, you let them share their distinctive views. And when you do, you realize there are some that cannot be reconciled. Yes, give them a seat at the table and be respectful about their beliefs just like you want them to be respectful of yours. But some ideas cannot be reconciled. Islam and Christianity offer two different visions, not only of God, but of salvation, and and especially of Jesus himself. For Muslims, it's illogical and blasphemous to associate a physical, tangible, finite being with the infinite majesty of God. This is exactly what Christianity does. Jesus is the infinite made finite. God in a bod right? The Muslim vision of God's power and majesty excludes any idea that, that, that he would degrade and dishonor himself. 
The Christian vision of God's majesty rests in the precise idea that he degraded and dishonored himself on your behalf. That's different. What's blasphemous to Islam, that God would dishonor himself, is the very center and very glory of Christianity. It starts and ends with Jesus. It centers on Jesus, who being in very nature God, humbled himself and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Our our Muslim neighbors and coworkers and friends would say, that's blasphemy. That's idolatry. We say, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Absolutely he did. And he did it on your behalf. That's different. So next week, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to talk about next week. You just need to come back next week, okay? (laughs) But we're going to compare two ideas, two things that are happening in our world right now, two things that that have been going on for a long time, but they are very, very prevalent all around us. Pluralism and atheism. So next week, we're going to go really, really deep. So bring your thinking cap. But I promise I will make it as palatable as, pro- as possible. All right? Let me pray for us, and then we'll get out of here. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the word made flesh. God, thank you for the the security that we can have in knowing that he has acted in history, that he is still at work today in his church through his spirit. God, you're still at work in me. And so, Jesus, would you, through your spirit in your church, continue to solidify these things? Would you continue to show us what it looks like to work out our salvation in fear and trembling, not to get salvation, but because we already have it? Because we know that we know that we know that you have made a way for us. And God, would you help us to keep our eyes open, to keep our ears open, to keep our hearts open to anybody and everybody around us that may not know this or or may think the exact opposite. God, would you give us grace? Would you help us to be gentle in how we approach these things with our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers? God, would you help us to reflect who you are to the world around us? And in the end, we put our faith, we put our trust, we put our confidence in you and you alone. And it's in the name of Jesus I ask all these things. Amen. Have a wonderful week. You are dismissed.